Hi, I'm Rebecca Coombs. I'm Head of News and Views at the BMJ and, and we're recording this podcast in the second week of January 2018 where winter pressures on NHS services seem to have kicked in a, a little bit earlier than usual. Um, so here to discuss that and, and also the issue of um, how local NHS leaders can support staff in times of extreme pressure, you know, what conditions are looking for and need from the top team at the hospital. For that I'm joined by Joe Harrison who's CEO of Milton Keynes Hospital NHS Foundation Trust and he's been there since 2013 and I think Joe has got 25 years of experience working in acute sector of the NHS so hello Joe. Hello Rebecca. Hi and uh, joining us also is Matthew Anada Kim who's a consultant in acute and general medicine at Hampshire Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust with a special interest in sepsis and deterioration. In, in fact Matthew I believe you're also a, a national clinical advisor on sepsis for NHS England and deterioration for NHS improvement. Yeah, that's correct. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, hi. So, just to put this into context, uh, in, in an unprecedented mood, NHS England has advised services in England to defer outpatient appointments and day case surgery and extend an existing deferral on non-urgent surgery until the end of January in a bid to ease mounting pressure on services this winter. And so far, I think 55,000 operations have been cancelled and we're seeing a return to mixed-sex wards in some part of the country. And unsurprisingly, doctors are reporting that teams are working at full stretch. I think Taj Hassan of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine said last week that many clinicians have not seen such working environments in this century. And the Institute of Fiscal Studies says the NHS has experienced the tightest funding squeeze in its history. So um, perhaps I'd be great to hear from both of you what the, perhaps you can sketch out the, the, the local situation at your hospitals this week. Perhaps, Joe, if you wouldn't mind starting, how, how, are, um, how are things in Milton Keynes? This week we have seen a, a slightly better position than we did pre-Christmas. And that is, without question, a testament to all of the, the hard work and efforts that people have put in, the staff across the organisation. And so yesterday, for example, we were able to, if you, if you take the four-hour performance as an indicator, it is but one indicator of, of the quality of care, um, we actually were up at 99% for the day. Mm. Now, as a chief exec, that tells me that we were in control of the numbers of patients coming into our hospital and that we were managing them in an, in an appropriate and timely way. As I say, it is only one indicator, obviously. But that compares to the significant pressures that we were under before the new year. So the pressures kicked in before the new year. Yes, absolutely. We had a we had a, a very challenging time between Christmas and New Year, which historically has been a quiet time. Mm -hmm. And normally, what we've seen in previous years is sort of from from this weekend onwards, the pressure has built. Whereas actually, what we saw was significant pressures. And then certainly in this in this area, we've seen those pressures just ease slightly um, over the last week. And how do you account for that? Um that increase in pressure unusually before Christmas? We saw a significant increase in the number of admissions coming into the hospital. Interestingly, not the number of attendances. So our A&E attendances were fairly consistent with previous years. What we saw were significant numbers of very elderly and um, sick patients requiring admission. Okay, thank you. Um, and Matthew, um, 
how are conditions down in Hampshire? Um, so I'm afraid to say we haven't improved as uh, in terms of the position as much as we'd have liked. Um, we, we're not anywhere close to the 99% at the moment in terms of the uh, four-hour target. Um, people are sick. People are old. They're on intravenous treatment. They're on oxygen. They're frail with huge numbers of comorbidities. And uh, quite frankly, these are patients um, who may not have been alive 20 years ago, but who are surviving due to the advances, I think, in primary care, preventative medicine, in secondary care, and in keeping patients with chronic disorders alive. Um, and as a result, uh, this increased stress and pressure on the system, um, which, you know, in some ways we are victims of our own success, has led to successional um, increases in the demands on the NHS year on year, I think for the past 25 years. It sounds like you have a, 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 a big increase in a, a very acutely ill people, so a, a very busy uh, ICU as well. Yeah, I mean, it's across the whole spectrum. So, um, you know, Christmas, for instance, working at Christmas, you used to be able to have time for a lunch, you know, a 15-minute lunch break. Um, you know, this Christmas, our teams were... There wasn't any time for lunch. There was no time for for anything one would one would associate normally with a Christmas sort of working environment. Um, and I think that's testament to the degree of acuity that we are now seeing, and demands on the service. And Matthew, staying with you for a minute, uh, what are the consequences of conditions working at full stretch for long periods of time? Um, well, your error rate creeps up. Uh, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realise that. Um, we. We've come from a situation, so when I first started in medicine, we were doing 72-hour weekends. So, you know, from, from where we were, we we're significantly better than, than uh, you know, in our previous position. We now, we're now doing stretches of 12 to 13 and a half hours as our maximum time on the shop floor, which is great. But still, the demands, I would say, of doing a 12 or 13-hour shift nowadays compared to what, you know, when I first started a 72-hour shift, the amount you can actually do and the complexity and the level of acuity has really rocketed, which which makes it in some ways a harder ask. Um, and, you know, we know that, you, you know, a working stretch of three to four hours is probably the maximum safest time. But, you know, when you are running at, you know, nearly 95 to 110% capacity at all times in terms of calls coming in, you know, clinical work being administered, you, you run the risk of dropping the ball. And, um, you know, it, we don't have the deputization systems. They do in other safety-critical industries, which... So which, you would say um, four hours at any one time without a break working under those conditions? Is yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and Joe, just moving to you, where do you get your intelligence from? What signals are you most alert to um, in, in terms of the conditions that your conditions are working under? I think, firstly, I'd like to support what Matthew's saying there in terms of the intensity. There's no question that the intensity that we're asking our clinicians, not just the doctors, but the nurses, allied healthcare professionals, supporting these patients who are chronically unwell um, is, is significant and has increased over the years. In terms of where we're getting our intelligence from, the first and, and most obvious place which is critical to us is directly from the shop floor. Mm -hmm. This is about making sure that everybody feels able to raise concerns, escalate pressures and shout for help. The NHS doesn't operate on a constant. It has peaks of real and significant pressures. 
And so part of my job, part of the job of everybody in the organization is to take responsibility for saying, we need more help here, we need support, and getting extra people in as and when we can. And I think that's a really important issue. So, so just to take that as an example, what do you do if, if your consultants are saying there aren't enough staff on this particular rotor? What can you do uh, in the immediate moment to help? These pressures do manifest themselves across different parts of the organization. So let me give you an example. We have had a brilliant response from a number of our surgeons who have been coming to the front door to help out both A&E and our acute physicians who have been under extreme pressure. And they've been making sure that we're doing joint clerking, that we're looking after patients across the sort of team matrix rather than just putting all the pressure at the front door of the hospital and getting that team behavior is is critical so you, so these are surgical styles that are being being redeployed um to the front end of the hospital um seeing as with 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 the reduction in ele- with the with the cancellation of elective care at the moment so they're volunteering they're stepping forward to help their colleagues at times of significant pressure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and Matthew, how does it seem from from your position on the shop floor? Um, so I think Joe's hit the nail on the head that you know a good trust like Joe sounds like um, has this uh, has this escalation built in and an intrinsic link between leadership and the clinicians. So you know the feelers are on the ground and you have very early intelligence when things are not working well, together with clear lines of communication between um, leadership and clinicians and vice versa. Um, I think the point he also makes about distributive risk, I think, is very is, is spot on as well. This concept that um, just loading up your acute front door with all the risk, so patients in corridors, patients in temporary ward accommodation with no increase in staff, patients in ambulatory areas who should be bedded down in, in elective areas and actually physically on beds rather than trolleys is all really, really important. Um, and, you know, to house them all in one area is a recipe for disaster. And the question is, as an organization, should you not be distributing that risk across the whole organization um, and thinking about maybe taking an extra patient per ward when things are really bad, as opposed to, you know, having 70 patients in the emergency department that shouldn't be there. Um, I think the help from the specialties is, again, he's absolutely right. You know, getting this perfect week model championed by NHS England is actually really good and interesting and, you know, gives great intelligence as to what the NHS could provide, perhaps with better staffing. Um, certainly as far as the emergency access goes. Um, this, this idea of optimizing our systems so that there is only a single clerking, a single assessment in, and full documentation done once by a team and then not replicated 20 or 30 different times, I think is really important. Um, I think understanding our, you know, the problems we face and the demographic we face, I think is really important as well. So we've pushed for years and years and years to become as specialist as possible without... I think a similar focus on what the main issue is, which is the most important specialty of all, that of general medicine. Um, you know, that is what our patients are coming in with. 80 to 85% of emergency admissions are coming in with a, a mix of general conditions. And yet, these are not breadwinners in terms of the income for an acute trust because of perhaps slightly outdated models of reimbursements um, at a, a trust level. So you, you get more money for doing a specialist procedure than obviously saving someone's life who is incredibly acutely unwell. 
these issues that you alert to then joe are you able to have you been able to to open up surgical wards um for for acutely ill emissions over the last couple of weeks we have yes we've we've absolutely made sure that where patients need to come into a bed they come into a bed and they're appropriately looked after matthew's matthew's point around um, the, the reimbursement mechanisms I, I completely agree with I think it's it's number 120 on the list at the moment for any sensible sort of acute trust chief that given given where we are but it it's making sure that we put the money in the right, right parts of the system whether that's primary care community mental health you know I've gone on I've gone on national TV to say don't don't give any more money to the acute hospitals actually give it to those parts of the system that can help and support the hospitals and if we can look after the patients that really need looking after we probably have enough capacity when did you get your extra winter pressures money in, and did it make much of a difference? From our perspective here at MK, we were planning to do what we were doing. The fact that we got a bit of extra money, I think we ended up getting just under a million pounds, that it will effectively just go to balance the books on money that we were going to be spending mm. planning for winter pressure anyway. So, you know, getting extra money is great. Actually, the reality was that we were going to to carry out the actions that we'd put in place anyway. Mm. And Matthew, are you able to answer that from sort of Hampshire's point of view? Um, so we, unfortunately, we have a recruitment issue across the acute and emergency general medicine kind of uh, sector nationally, um, which is affecting not only consultants, but also junior doctors, doctors in training, nurses. Um, you know, there is something about the sustainability of a career in, you know, this sort of, uh, you know, high acuity area um, and actually making it an attractive place to work. And we're not selling it well at the moment. Could I, could I, sorry, um, Rebecca, just pick up on something that Matthew said, which I think is, is really important mm -hmm. about this um, spreading the load across the hospital. And again, in terms of, in terms of changes that we've seen over the last sort of decade or two, the concept of putting an extra patient onto a ward would never have been considered 10 years ago. Only this morning, I went with my chief nurse to walk the wards where we were actively considering, should pressures go back up again, where we might put an extra patient on five of our wards. Mm -hmm. uh, we absolutely discounted a couple of areas and we begrudgingly have accepted a couple of areas that do have their own oxygen supply and are wide enough to accommodate an extra bed. The, the reason for coming back to Matthew's point is that I think we are all nervous about accepting suboptimal and poor solutions mm. for delivering care as a way of getting out of this. And I think all of us in the NHS are worried that the pressures that we're under are gradually eating away at the very fabric of why we want to come to work, which is to provide fantastic care for our patients. Mm. And that's what you're hearing. Which brings me to my next question, really, is that um, there will be staff working out there that are aware that they aren't providing the kind of care that they want to. They're just not able to. And, and what mechanisms are in place to enable staff to raise concerns? Um, I mean, is there an issue with leaders not strongly encouraging staff to raise concerns? Uh, Matthew, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks. Um, I, I would say 
I, I don't see that. I think that leaders are very encouraging. Certainly in, in my career, I've seen some great leaders who um, I'm working with a great leader now who, who, who basically has open arms towards this sort of thing. You know, there's an email address, there's a phone number to phone. You know, this is this sort of um, this close contact leadership is really critical. We, we need to be breaking down and ensuring the barriers that exist between clinicians and leaders um, absolutely dissipate, as they have done year on year for the past 25 years. Um, this is not a them and us situation. This is a we. Um, and that's the only way we're going to get through this um, current pressure. Um, and so th- those leaders that are breaking through in that way, what are they doing right so I think the um, the culture change brought on by the Francis Report and the Freedom to Speak Up guardians that is being instilled in every single acute organisation, I think we're up to about 150 trusts around the country now. Um, Henrietta Hughes' work is obviously in its infancy at the moment, but it's a good forward step. Um, and, you know, having a cultural node of excellence within each acute trust is the starting point for all of this. Um, I think the the fact that every single organisation um, and central body, GMC, BMA, certainly uh, the Defence Unions, the Royal College of Nursing, all have very strict and very clear policies on speaking up and how it should be done and who should be contacted, both internally and externally. Um, I think the bit we're missing at the moment and the things that the Freedom to Speak Up Guardians will ensure is that you know staff within each organisation are actually trained in, in how to do it. You know, if you're going to speak up, this shouldn't come across as being a tired rant at the end of a shift. This should be a useful, constructive, um, you know, conversation where the problem is highlighted and the perceived risks and then potentially some constructive feedback about what needs to change to improve the situation. And, you know, these staff are in the best position to make those constructive suggestions. But um, when you're hard pressed and you're under pressure and you're filling in a datix form that is, hard to access in the first place and and feels uh, in some ways um, ineffective or futile. Um, you know, you, your message can come across as a rant and, you know, this, this again increases the barrier as opposed to reducing the barrier between clinicians and leadership. Thanks. And, and Joe, you will have hospital processes on how to escalate concerns and how are they communicated to staff and encouraged... So every, from every step of the way, from induction, which I did this morning for new starters, setting out exactly how people can raise concerns, through to the sort of formal and, and informal processes, the, whether, whether that's the um, enabling staff to anonymously raise concerns on email if they don't feel able to use their own names, through to setting up peer-to-peer um, opportunities out of hospital, so off-site opportunities for individual members of staff to go and talk to people and raise concerns, again, confidentially or otherwise. I think the other really interesting part for me is from from an executive perspective in the hospital, how does the whole executive engage? Mm. And so at Milton Keynes, my director of workforce is the board lead for end-of-life care. So she's always out and about on the wards going through the end-of-life pathway. Mm-hmm. That gives her visibility. It gives her that clinical exposure that perhaps not every HR director in an organization gets. Mm. And the more, the more the team are out and about, the more likely they are to pick up on uh, sort of softer issues, informal issues that people just catch you in the corridor about. Mm.
And how engaged is your board, for example, on emergency department flow? Is that is that a kind of granular level they will get involved in? They absolutely know what's going on, and every week they will do some form of walk around to different parts of the organisation. They are also part of the Freedom Speak Up process and the whistleblower process. Those those tend to be the very formal aspects. Mm. What what we're encouraging across our board is just go out there. Go out there, go into a ward and chat to people. Go into a, go into a clinical department and chat to people. Mm. And that's so much better at picking up the soft intelligence when it's not a when it's not a sort of formal meeting involving the chairman or something like that. Mm. Um, so getting getting the board out, getting them into the organisation is, is is a key part of getting that feedback. Mm. I mean, what can staff do if they've been working very long hours and then they're due back into work within five hours? Who can they turn to? I mean, the reality is, if they don't turn up, the team will suffer, the patients will suffer, and, and ultimately they have no choice but to soldier on. I mean, Matthew, do you recognise that at all? Um, yeah, unfortunately. Um, I, I mean, obviously, it's more than five hours of a break, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. You know, we've moved on from that time period at least. But, you know, it can feel like you're, you're back at work immediately for long stretches, um, particularly when you do a weekend on, you know, that's 12 days in a row, um, which is pretty rough. Mm. Um, the, I think the, I think the major, the major change is a bit of more capacity so that when you, when you do go to work, you're not doing the job of two people. I think that's the first start of a 10. And, and unfortunately there are days when you feel like that is the case. Um, that is the relative of what we face. If you, if you do have an extra 70 patients within your emergency department than you should have, for instance, and you, you know, you come to work as an ED nurse or an ED doctor you know, expecting to see the new patients, the new influx, mm. without necessarily having to take on the risk of the day before. Mm. Um, and, you know, this is the depressing part. When you when you come into a shift and you see the same patient who you left previously still in the department. Mm. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think there's, you know, I know we're not at solutions, but we, we do have to make coming to ED the correct thing in the correct environment and the correct time and I think we've, we've done a very good job of making it a very attractive place to come to with the most minor of illnesses um, you know as a way a workaround for other parts of the system and, and that's um, still still a, a significant issue then the sort of the uh, uh... I, I think there are certain people that need to be there so your majors patients need to be there and you know I can see that you know from my boards we have 50 to 70 majors patients that you know are are waiting for significant amounts of time periods within our hospitals you know there there's the truth um but you know if you if you only had if you halved the minors patients you know and potentially had those all dealt with in the sector they should be dealt with um or in primary care problems then you know we could potentially make inroads into the majors cases um mm. and have more focus on those mm. Uh, I'm not saying it's a solution because, uh, you know, our block is the exit block from ED to wards, mm -hmm. uh, the MAU, the downstream wards and discharge, obviously. But, you know, with more staff focused on the matter, it would certainly help. And it comes back to more staffing. So this is an interesting issue, Joe, that you can be a fantastic listening organisation. But then once you've taken on board those concerns, how can you react to them that, in a way that makes a positive difference to staff on the, on, the, on, the, on the ground? What can you and your leadership team to protect do to protect staff from dangerous working conditions? 
I do think that we are here trying to separate out the the sort of longer term and planning for that longer term. Milton Keynes is the second fastest growing place in the country. Mm. So we we know that not only is it tough today, it's going to be very, very tough in the future. So we've opened our independent medical school. We're training the doctors of tomorrow. We've trebled the number of nursing students to try and attract people to come and work here. You know, we're not the Oxfords or the Cambridges or the or the Londons. So, mm. so what are our what are our unique reasons for getting people to come and work in Milton Keynes? And likewise, re- with research, really pushing the research agenda so that our patients can access research and clinicians who love to do it come and work Absolutely. here. That's that's different from the how on earth do we fill the the A and E shift tomorrow mm. at eight o'clock in the morning and we are absolutely reliant upon the the support of everybody in the clinical teams to get through when we have got vacancies we've we've been fortunate so far here we've just seen that we've just seen the flu stats and we are very very concerned about how not just mk will hold up but the rest of the nhs if it if flu hits us in the way that it's hit France and other places. And do you think CEOs have a duty to speak out about conditions in, in, in their local NHS organisations in a way of sort of managing up, if you like? Sorry, say that again? Do, 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 do chief executives like yourself have a duty to speak out about con- local conditions in the NHS, and conditions that are in, in some ways beyond their control? We do absolutely have a duty to speak out. I think one of the things that I and my colleague chief execs wrestle with the whole time is what support and added benefit can be got from speaking out about issues that we know are are already known about. So when somebody speaks to me today about what the biggest problem in the NHS is, for me it's it's not money, it's staff and it's the workforce. Mm. And and that's a well-known issue centrally. Mm. So it's 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 how do we how do we use that voice to actually galvanize action how do we use the pressure locally to make sure that we get a workforce strategy over the next five years that is separated from the financial process of only looking at the next couple of years Mm. that's that's how i think i and my colleague chief execs are are trying to influence the debate and when there are serious safety concerns, which I know have happened in some organisations, we are saying this is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And, and, and are you alert to sort of regional variations ar- around the country? Yes. So we are at you know, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day on conference calls, understanding which organisations were under the most significant pressure understanding what's going on is it is it just a problem in Milton Keynes or is it regionally is it nationally mm-hmm. that sort of intelligence is is really really helpful mm-hmm. Matthew I just want to turn to you briefly now the the, the case of the paediatrician Barrow Garber has shown that poor working conditions are no defense against charges of manslaughter and and do you think this, is, this has been a very celebrated case do you think doctors are more concerned about protecting themselves from conditions they think are dangerous yeah, I mean this is a this is a tragic and horrible case. Um, but the I think the I think the bottom line and the message being sent out to you know our frontliners, unfortunately, is you know certainly with infection and sepsis, is treat it 
to cover yourself and and which is absolutely the wrong message mm. you know this is about this is about someone actually putting their foot on the ball and exercising clinical judgment why they went to medical school for seven years um you know why they're fully trained nurses you know this is this is about um clinicians um doing the right thing within environments that allow correct decision making and um as i'm sure you're very familiar with the case multiple systemic issues um mm. certainly did not help the situation and, you know, I think if we're honest and navel gaze at our own organizations, our own working practices all around the country and probably all around the world, we are not always aware when a, an X-ray is done um, within the hour that it's been accomplished, because there's often a very significant lag in getting that X-ray done in the first place. We're not often aware when a blood result comes back, um, other than it's on our list of things to check later. Mm -hmm. But if you're if you're seeing your 20th patient of the day single-handedly in the emergency department, you know, who's there to remind you to check your results? Um, do the results come and find you magically? Or is this something that you have to put um, 20 different reminders on your mobile phone for? Um, you know, there, there, are, there are lessons. Um, there are pointers. There's compassion in this. There is understanding. Um, and there is potentially a roadmap towards systems engineering to ensure the system is as safe as possible. Mm. And, and Joe, would you want to come in here? So uh, the organisation absolutely has a responsibility to make it as, as easy as possible for individual practitioners, be they doctors, nurses, allied healthcare professionals, to do their job. So I think there is a real challenge for organisations about whether they are using technology to support those processes I mean, that the very the very nature of the way that clinicians work in terms of ordering tests what are the what are the follow-up mechanisms that make it a system and not down to individual the potential for individual failure absolutely think the organization has a part to play there also I, I induction this morning I, I talked to staff about the fact we've had never events here and we haven't disciplined or dismissed anybody on the back of those never events. Mm -hmm. So this is about how does an organization learn from mistakes that are made. Uh, healthcare is a, it's an art, it's not a science, it's, it's a people business. And how do we support, support people to do the best possible jobs that they can? Mm -hmm. and, and just one of the final questions, how do you see the rest of the winter playing out? So as I said, we're in the second week of January. Um, what happens at the end of this month when uh, we're faced with a backlog of delayed outpatient appointments and day case surgery? At Milton Keynes, we've been lucky enough so far not to have had mass cancellations of outpatients. We've obviously had to cancel some. Um, our expectation is at the moment that we can, if things carry on as they are now, we can we can pick that back up. I, I said earlier our our major concern is a, a, a an increase in the number of frail elderly patients coming in who are acutely unwell, be that through flu or we've seen a significant spike in patients with respiratory sepsis. And if that does go back up to the levels that we saw pre the new year, mm -hmm. um, I think we are we are planning at the moment to see how we can access other ring fenced capacity off this hospital site okay because 
Uh, I'm, I'm really concerned, and my team here are really concerned, that just because somebody has a planned operation, it doesn't mean they can wait forever. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a mindset we have to avoid. So, so we're looking now at how we can get extra capacity to make sure that those people that need those planned operations can have them. So, for example, using private sector hospitals to take well, if up... Well, some... if we have our consultants, they are surgeons who can't operate because we have these acutely unwell patients in their medical patients in their beds, how can we use those surgeons mm-hmm. elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Whether, that's, whether that's renting space, whether that's bringing our own space on site. I think at the moment for us, the key is to get the capacity in. These patients can't wait forever. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, and Matthew, how do you view February? Um, I would love to be optimistic, but I think it will stay busy, unfortunately. Um, I, I think every time we have a reset on the barometer in terms of an exceptionally bad winter, um, we think there's going to be a summer, but um, I don't think we've had a summer for a good five or six years now. Um, it just gets worse mm. in terms of the activity numbers, rotor holes, um, you know, I think we need to be quite bold in our experimentation and our, our thinking and our thinking outside the box. We've we've done this experiment of a perfect week or a perfect month in some ways, you know, cancelling the elective stuff mm-hmm. that Joe has eloquently answered. Um, the, the thing that we really need to see is a shining model, an example of how it works when you actually fund a system appropriately. You know, what would work in a perfect hospital? If you had four staff to cover three people's jobs as, as currently exists. You know, the NHS is incredibly good at working to the bone mm-hmm. and working to the absolute maximum efficiency as our GDP status and OECD uh, data proves and the Commonwealth Fund data really proves. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd spend the least out of any OECD developed country in the world. And we've always run on that margin and that's the margin, you know, politically we've been happy with and as taxpayers we've been happy with. But... Is the time has the time reached its expiry date? Have we actually reached the limit of our efficiencies in terms of financial savings, bed closures, etc.? You know, and I think this is a really important debate and an apolitical debate that needs to be um, carried on far, far past this interview. So my final question to both of you was, and this leads me nicely on to it: What one change would make the biggest difference to these annual winter pressures? And, and Matthew, it seems that you're suggesting funding or a new funding model for the NHS. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think I think actually having, you know, if, if I was coming to work and I knew that instead of my team of seven, I had a team of 10 and that 10 was still a bit short, but actually, you know, is probably going to be enough to cope mm. with the night. Um, it would It would help immeasurably, you know, in terms of morale going into it, probably staff sickness as well, you know, which we can plot very nicely on the uh, on a graph to actually see what our staff sickness rate is. Mm. Um, retention of staff in the five to ten year period, you know, we're hemorrhaging NHS staff at a rate of 18 to 30 percent of NHS staff are leaving mm. to never return to healthcare. You know, we have a, a morale issue that needs addressing and we have to ask ourselves why. You know, we have to be better at doing these exit interviews and coming up with strategies to think, what is it that will retain my staff for the next 40 years after their training? because um, that's what we need and and joe would you care to answer that final question what what one change would make the biggest difference to winter pressures 
It's, it's everything that Matthew has described and sitting on top of that because of the, the lag in terms of getting people in. For me, it's hope. It is a, an, a belief that things are going to change. It's a recognition of the pressure that we're under and an acknowledgement that things are changing. I and, and my team here, my clinicians, will do everything that we can as long as we know that the light at the end of the tunnel is exactly that and not another train coming. <laughs> Thanks very much. I mean, I'm just, just fine. Is there anything that either of you wanted to add that we haven't been able to touch on over the last half an hour? The, the only thing I would, I would um, also sort of add in is recognition of, of brilliance. So I think good organisations, good clinical teams are very, very good at recognising when staff go that extra mile and whether it's the, the great system that's starting to come into the NHS that we've got here where individuals are being nominated, whether it's, whether it's individual awards or the softer recognition piece. I think we as, a, we as an NHS are sometimes a little bit too British in our behaviours and don't celebrate success as much as we could. And that is, that is a fantastic boost for morale when we do. Thank you. And, and Matthew, is there anything else that you wanted to add? I fully agree with what Joe just said. Um, I think a big part of it's human resources for me. So, uh, you know, I, I was in Kaiser Permanente briefly just to assess their system um, and a lot of the high-performing U.S. healthcare systems. And you, you go over there with an HR ratio of one HR worker for every three doctors. Mm. I come back to the NHS and I've got, I think, you know, around most hospitals around the country, there are two HR workers working for about 300 doctors. Mm. Um, you know, th we are at bare bones in terms of, and I'm not saying this particularly around doctors, but what I'm saying is there's a nurturing aspect and development aspect to organisations that exist in the highest performing organisations. And it's something we've, again, lost. We've lost the pastoral elements and encouraging the pastoral elements of peer support. Um, you know, doctors' messes all around the country are being disbanded and destroyed. Um, you know, these are the things that keep your morale up when you've got someone you can talk to, when you're encouraged to talk to that person, as opposed to meet a ship in the night on a shift randomly every couple of months. Mm. Um, you know, and I think the thing that keeps us great as an NHS is our ability to go above and beyond. And, and we've done that for 50 years. What, 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 what we need to keep the energy up and to keep the, the sustainability of that model up is encouragement of the pastoral support of our staff and their morale.